Hey everyone, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Rira Yu. And welcome to another one of our author chat episodes of Books and Boba. For this episode, we chat with Mike Chen, the author of The Beginning at the End. Uh, uh, a Beginning at the End is set in a post-apocalyptic world. I, I guess it's not really apocalyptic, but it's after a, a flu pandemic wipes out a large uh, number of the global population. And it's set in San Francisco. And it centers on three characters who meet by chance and kind of form this bond with each other. And it turns out that uh, there is a mutation of the virus that once wiped out a big chunk of humanity. And it just kind of picks up from there. Yeah. And I will leave it to Mike to talk more about it. <laughs> it's very ominous given today's circumstance, but also not really because flus happen all the time. You never know when one will turn into the big one. I remember Mike, he tweeted out a photo of his local Target and they were like completely sold out of face masks, like yeah. to like cover, uh, to make sure that germs don't spread. And he was just like, wow, perfect timing. <laughs> and I thought it was really funny. So. Yeah, it's um, it's about time the face mask trend reached the states. To be honest, because you know everyone should be more conscious. It's super fashionable too. Like, who <laughs> wouldn't want to be a ninja like half the time? <laughs> yeah, well, we talk with Mike about his book and more. Um, so please enjoy our interview. So we're here with Mike Chen, the author of A Beginning at the End. Thank you, Mike, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So um, I know that you worked as a sports writer uh, covering hockey, but you also contributed to geek websites like The Mary Sue. Uh, but I read in your bio, sorry if I was a little bit of a stalker, um, okay. I I read that you used to write fan fiction as a kid, so I have to ask you, what fandom did you write fanfics under? It was, um, so I grew up in, I was born in 78, so like when I was uh, seven years old in 1985, like I was already into Star Wars at the time, but then I discovered Robotech, which if you're not familiar with it, was like the first um, anime, like real invasion of anime in the United States. It was three different anime series that were rewritten and dubbed into one like multi-generational epic in the United States and still has a cult following. Um, and I'd never seen storytelling like that before. Um, and, and even like rewatching it now, like some of the production values are obviously dated because it was like, if you read about how it was actually made, it was like made off of union hours. So everyone was like working in the middle of the night and they didn't have a lot of budget. <laughs> Um, but like the writing still holds up and the characters are great and I can rewatch it and, um, and I can't believe they got away with it on, you know, daytime TV back then. So I wrote a lot of fan fiction of that. I would draw them in comic strips. I would have them cross over into other, uh, franchises. And, uh, um, yeah, so that, that was like my first big love, um, and where I really tried to take those characters and explore, 
um, you know, just explore that universe like a sandbox. So you went from prose to journalism and then back to prose in, yeah. in like a in like a circle. How was it like going back into fiction after doing journalism for so long? I so I took um I, I'd always had a, a I felt like a natural ability to write. Um I did a lot of like personal journaling in high school and college and I think like when you do that a lot you kind of start to feel like the rhythm of writing and then um I took creative writing and my my teacher actually encouraged me to change majors and I was like three and a half years into an engineering degree at that point and I'm like I, I can't Oh my write. god <laughs> <laughs> My parents would murder me. So, uh, so I, I, but she said, keep writing. And her name is Wendy Sheenan. Uh, I've talked about her in interviews over the past few years because um, she's an executive now at Simon and Schuster. And I think without her, I would have never gone in this direction. She, she told me to you know find critique partners and to explore all forms of writing and just to keep at it. Um, so we, we actually got back in touch after I signed with my agent. And so, uh, she's, she's very aware of, of her impact on my career. Um, so I, after I graduated, I was doing technical writing, um, with my engineering degree, but then I started, it was like the early days of, of sports writing on the internet. Um, so if you were good, it didn't matter how much experience or background you had, like people just wanted quality content on their sites. Um, so I, I just applied for places. I had my own personal blog and then that got picked up by bigger outlets. Um, I wound up writing for Fox Sports and contributing to Yahoo Sports and a few other places. Um, and after a while, it just kind of like I've done everything with that um, that I wanted to and I still had a day job. Um, I wasn't going to become like a, a beat writer for a sports team or anything. So, I, And I had a mortgage to pay for too, which is always important. Um, so then um, I got the itch to write creatively again. And so I just kind of started going at it probably about 2009, 2010. Um, and then I decided to just uh, retire from the sports side and just focus on that um, while also starting to pick up for, for the geek media sites because I really am, am just a giant nerd my whole life. And to be able to write for those sites and you know contribute every few months and get paid for it, it's kind of a dream. Yeah, uh, Marvin and I are both super nerds so <laughs> i would say super i would say we play a lot of video games we have talked yeah. about video games and other like tv shows on this podcast to a point where i'm pretty sure people think that we're like a half like geek podcast on top of being a nerdy literature podcast we can uh, <laughs> all sorts of tangents <laughs> Um, so in the prologue of A Beginning at the End, Moira, or uh, Mojo as she was called back then, remembers her father telling her, there is no sophomore slump, smile. And this is your sophomore novel. And I know for a lot of authors who are writing their second book, it's actually a lot harder than uh, writing their debut book. So I just wanted to know like, if that was uh, your experience or if was it easier this time around writing your second book? This was a really interesting experience because I had originally, this was the third manuscript I had attempted when I decided I was going to um, try creative writing again. Um, the first two manuscripts were were like just contemporary books. Um, and then I was getting frustrated with that. And my critique partner, I told my critique partner, I'm like, what if I just took one of these story ideas that I have and then just like set it in like, you know, against a sci-fi setting 
And I'm like, oh, no agent would ever pick that up. I shouldn't do it. And, and my critique partner said, well, why don't you just do it? Because you'll have more fun with it. And at the very least, you know, you'll grow as a writer. Um, so that was this project. Now, this project did get shelved around 2013 because they got some interests from agents in based on the pitch, but the quality wasn't there. Um, and so uh, while I was working on my debut book, when I was in edits with that, um, my agent pulled this off the shelf and he said that uh, he really liked the idea, but it, it needed a lot of work and it, it needed in uh, like bonkers amount of work <laughs> because um, th- this book as it stands right now is, has four points of view. Um, it has a lot of like interstitials from like news clippings and historical speeches and things like that. And, and, um, and a lot of flashbacks, I think about 20% of, of the book is, is flashback. Uh, and none of that existed in the original, um, in the original draft. So that was the, a lot of work in a way that I think book two pressure doesn't normally affect people because I had the basic arc down, but I had to do all of these just changes and moving things around and musical chairs with points of view and things like that. So this was like an extra difficult process. Um, I have just turned in my third book about two months ago. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I think that one was more of the traditional, like, oh, crap, I've signed a contract and I'm on deadline and this book is not done. <laughs> and I don't know how to handle this. I think that was more similar to most people's book two experiences. Um, this one was a special kind of hell. Uh, like one of my friends who was an agent, but not my agent. Um, but when, when I told her like, this is what I had to do to actually get this ready to sell. Um, she was like, this is like a decathlon for writers. This is insane. I'm like, yeah, I don't, don't try anything like this, but I'm really happy with how it turned out. And it seems like people are really happy with it too. Yeah, uh, your experience actually reminds me of Min Jin Lee, the author of Pachinko, because actually uh, Pachinko took about 10 years to write. And actually, it was her second book that she published, the first book, Free Food for Millionaires. Uh, Like she I think she like wrote it as like a break from writing Pachinko. And uh, she did like a complete page one rewrite for uh, Pachinko once she moved to Japan. So it's really funny how uh, like... I mean, it goes to show that, like, everything you write is something. It's, yeah, it's useful. Writing yeah. is rewriting. I, I would say, you know, I, I tell people that, like, you know, this is a good example of, like, never give up. It's a really extreme example of it. Um, but I also tell people that, like, any of your ideas, even if you shift genres, there's something that you can take from any idea that you have. And, you know, it may explode into a fully published book like this or it could just be a scene or a character or a vibe or something like that but everything that you work on is going to contribute in some way give you some sort of asset or resource that you can propagate into further into your writing yeah definitely i actually have a folder on my desktop that says graveyard and i pretty (laughs) (laughs) any scenes that i don't use or it just like doesn't work i just put it into that folder and I yeah. and I whisper to my darling, saying, "I will come back for you one day." <laughs> you, you'll reanimate them; they'll yeah, become zombie stories. It's really great too, because like you never know where, like even if like the character doesn't fit into a different work, but like maybe the situation does, or the tone does, or a joke, or a line of dialogue, or something. So, you know, it's I think it's important to keep all of that. 
Yeah. Um, so your new book is set six years after a flu pandemic. And if I'm correct, the novel is set in 2025? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So why did you pick a, like, a closer date as opposed to setting it, like, I don't know, a century later? Um, so the big, the big theme of this was, um, or I guess the original concept was with a lot of apocalyptic fiction, you either see the very, very beginning of it and it's just kind of like terror and survival mode, or you see a far future type of thing where like everything shifts into this world that we don't recognize. Um, but you know, there's a significant population reduction and then, you know, there might be climate aspects or zombie aspects or whatever. Um, what I really thought would be interesting is if on a very superficial level, like if you took a snapshot of these people, like in their daily lives, it would look extremely similar to what we have. But then underneath it, everyone would be battling this severe amount of trauma. Um, and the only way to really do that is pandemic in a near future setting. Um, it, it can't be climate apocalypse because that would destroy infrastructure. It can't be zombie apocalypse because that's a constant threat. It can't be nuclear apocalypse, apocalypse because that's destruction and radiation. So like, this was the only way to actually tell that story. Yeah, I really appreciated how your book was melancholy and quiet as opposed to a lot of uh, fiction and movies that are set in post-apocalyptic uh eras because you see Hunger Games and Mad Max and a lot of these uh, stories are about revolutions and um, your book focused on like pretty much a family unit. Um, can you tell us more about like how you came to flesh out these characters and uh, how you decided how uh, they were going to meet? Um, it, it was definitely an evolution. So if you look at the original not good draft of this circa 2011, the first act um, kind of plays it's mostly similar. It's like there's uh, Krista, who is like this cynical wedding planner who was just kind of like damaged from her childhood. Um, that that idea always existed. I wanted someone who was so um, calloused by the things that she had experienced before the apocalypse that she feels almost fearless after the apocalypse, but that fearlessness is all a facade. Like it, like it's so uh, she's so vulnerable underneath that she needs these, like these layers of defenses. Um, and so she had always met Rob in um, there's like a power outage and they get stuck in an elevator together. Uh, that happens very early on in the book. And that, that was always there. The length of time they were in that elevator um, has completely changed from beginning draft to the final draft because I'm, I think, a better writer and much better at pacing and structure now because they, they used to be in it for like five chapters and there was a long conversation they had. And, <laughs> and that was not good. Um, so there was a lot of consolidating and restructuring and stuff. Um, the idea of Rob and his daughter, Sunny, um, that's always been there from the beginning too. And it was the idea that... Um, how do you move on after uh, after like living in this? How do you open yourself up to other people again um, when your you know your loved ones probably died in like a catastrophic circumstance that everyone relates to? I, I there was a joke among like my critique partners 
where they were like, you must have the only apocalypse book with a speed dating scene. Oh, my um, God. That was one of my favorite scenes, by the way. I, you know, it's funny. That is almost completely intact from the original version, like back in, around 2011 or so. Like, There's some prose edits, but other than that uh it, it basically is the same thing and when my editor got her hands on it she's like this is like one of the scenes we're not going to touch um because i it was the idea of like people are going to try to connect again afterwards um but they're probably not going to be able to uh and i thought that was really really interesting and in order to have someone like that um or to have a scene like that you need to have someone who's in the circumstance that they would be uh be willing to try to to meet someone, you know, um, because I would think that in an, an apocalypse, like not everyone would be really wanting to date. Um, so it's, <laughs> it, it so was it, definitely like a mortifying scene. I was like, this is, this is my hell. Like if I had to yeah. go through an apocalypse versus, uh, like going on this awful speed dating, I would probably pick the apocalypse and just being like bunkered in, in like a shelter for like, three years because it it's mortifying <laughs> the idea came from like okay people are probably going to gravitate to normalcy to some degree you know that they and there's going to be someone who's going to try to capitalize off of it which is the people who run the speed dating thing um and at the same time even though you you think you want this like mentally emotionally you're probably not ready for it and because everyone's just so damaged from from what's happened so i thought there's a lot of interesting stuff that you could play with and i can't ever recall seeing something like that in apocalyptic fiction uh so uh that that that's basically been there from the beginning um and then the idea of moira she was originally a side character she didn't really get her full story until my agent got his hands on this and he said um he wanted me to add more points of view and he said Moira being a former pop star who is resetting her life, like that's way too juicy to just leave her off to the side. Uh, so she always had her arc in here, but the she didn't get as much screen time. Um, like now, like they are equally distributed in terms of whose point of view is shown. Um, but at the at the original draft, she was just a side character. I had bullet point notes of where she came from, but like I had to really sink into those for revision. Wow, that's uh, that's great to hear because I really liked Moira. I mean, she she seemed really badass, like learning how to do parkour, and she kind of like served her time in the wastelands. And I'm like, this could be her own book, you know? Like, I would I would love to read more about her, like surviving and reinventing herself. So I'm really glad that you were able to make her into a main character. I'm sure that wasn't an easy feat. <laughs> no, none of this, none of this revising was easy. But I'm really happy with her. I uh, actually, I'm really happy with all the characters. And it's interesting that I think the feedback that I've gotten from early readers is that there's a pretty equal distribution about who everyone's favorite character is. And I think like that means that okay, I got it. You know, and it's the people. I know people who say that they love Krista the best because she has this really fun, snappy voice. Uh, and even though she's damaged and kind of a dick to people, like they understand why. Um, I have people who are, you know, very sentimental and they, they tell me like they really understand why Rob did the things that he does and they love his relationship with Sonny. And then I have people who will say like Moira is so interesting 
running from her past and you know the things that she had to deal with it there that she's her favorite their favorite character so i think to have uh an equal balance among them is is really gratifying it feels like okay then i must have done it right yeah and also i really appreciated the fact that uh your main characters and a lot of your side characters were uh people of color and also were queer and uh, I just wanted to uh, ask you, like, was that something that you knew right away with your characters that they were going to be Asian or going to be mixed race or, or queer? Or was that something that came after you built your characters into the story? Um, it's a little bit of both. So um, I'd say like when I first draft a story, like everyone's faceless. Like I really don't assign um what they look like until probably like a second or third draft i'm just more trying to find their voice um and in this case um like rob was uh half asian i'd say like before i did major edits um and for me that was a really big thing where um like i have if you look my my debut book is has a really diverse cast but like i had a hard time like talking about Asian people in there. I mean, they're Asian people in the future, but like, you know, so you don't have to deal. My idea of the future had way less racism than <laughs> there is today, which I hope is true. Um, but it's still like, I worried about, uh, I'm like, I'm very self-conscious of like, is this going to be seen as self-projection type of thing? Um, uh, and I kind of got over that when I started talking to readers and talking to friends and other writers about like, you know what, like get over yourself with that because like, it's important to have that kind of representation in there. Um, and as I, I was developing this and kind of polishing it, um, one thing that I really hit upon is um, cause I'm Asian and my wife is white. And so our daughter is, is Hapa and um, that barely exists in fiction. Um, it's, especially like something that feels almost contemporary you often have um it's either like their their ethnic their ethnic background like is a huge influence on them or they're white you know and then like with this i wanted i, I wanted to have a feeling of like you know it, even it's the apocalypse so like it, it doesn't really impact as much you know from in terms of like a racism and systemic racism point of view but i wanted it to exist in there because i think it's really important to have that kind of representation in there um the, i'm i've always been with supporting casts i've always wanted just to have uh good diversity in there um it was with the like the asian and the hapa thing like i had to really think it through and kind of emotionally accept like you know, what am I doing this for and what does representation mean to me and to other people? Well, I hope it doesn't take an apocalypse to solve racism. Yeah. <laughs> I really kind of feels that way. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, going off that, you know, you're, you mentioned that this was a story that you developed first and then you wrapped it around this sci-fi premise to, you know, make it work for you. Um, something that's really interesting that we talk a lot about on this podcast when we read books is kind of the world building and how when the world is being built by people of color, people who have different experiences than like the the canon mainstream people, that we start to see more nuances and more you know, different perspectives come out. And I'm curious to see like in your own world building process, because you, you write science fiction, um, how have you found that, you know, your own personal um, experiences have influenced how you build your worlds and, you know, build your science fiction worlds? Um, I, I think it's, 
it it affects it, but it also doesn't um, because I am building out like fictional futures. Um, I did make a point of something that uh, because uh, up here in, in the Bay Area, I, I think I know more mixed race couples than than you know like same ethnicity. Um, and I, I looked up the percentage where it was like I think nationally it's like thirty three percent of couples now are of like mixed race. And so when I was building out the the world for my debut, um, because uh, about half of that book takes place in the year twenty one forty two. Um, and so there's mention about how like, um, someone can come off as like super white passing and also have like a very ethnic, uh, ethnocentric, you know, name, um, and vice versa. Um, and it, it, the idea is that I think like, I would like to think that in the future, you know, like we've normalized things so much that like it's not a big deal and you see you see pockets of that depending on where you live and like what the culture is um or like if you go to uh like a con or something that tends to embrace diversity so um like i try to have normalization of that in my work because i really 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 would like to see that um at, at the same time too though it's like um you're you're talking about like future people where like you know, they may not think about it as much. So it's just in the small details. Like um, in a beginning at the end, there's a talk about Rob who's half Japanese and his mom uh, made him spam sushi when he was a kid, which is, you know, something that Japanese kids eat. <laughs> My Japanese friends tried to feed it to me. I didn't like it. Um, so, you know, little details like that um, that are just kind of based on like personal experiences Um that aren't necessarily like important to driving the story. I, I will say one thing with all types of representation, um, there are, there are writers and some of them are friends uh, who like will write issue books and they do it really, really well. And like, you know, the, the, you know, the person's, the character's sexuality or, um, you know, gender identity or, or race or whatever is like, central to the story not just on a metaphorical level but like on a literal level um and that's really important i also think that it's important for it, it to be in there in some stories and not be not be a driver um because it's normalization you know it, it, it's like if these characters are just mixed race and queer and whatever um and everyone just accepts it and they're just working with it, then it also shows that, hey, it can just live here too. Um, we don't have to necessarily learn a lesson. The lesson is normalization. So um, with the types of stories that I write, um, they're more, they, they lean more towards that because I just don't think I have the writing chops to write about issues I believe in in a direct way. Um, but there's, I, I think it's really important that all art is political all world building decisions in a way are political. Um, and I think to, to demonstrate that like you can have a world that just feels like these people are accepted is really, really important. Yeah. I think, I, I think diversity in, in all forms is important. Like you said, like some, like sometimes we need those issue books so that it can teach, mm -hmm. especially young readers uh, how to empathize. And then you have, books like yours where it's like yeah we exist like yeah get I, over it <laughs> i'd love to have like that be a desperation for like uh the, a future sans racism um i i would like to see that happen you know <laughs> 
Um, one of the like one of the biggest examples of that to me in like the past decade of TV is um, I don't know if you watched The Flash, but the police captain in The Flash, his name is Captain Singh, so he he's Indian, and he just mentions something like "My husband's going to kill me" or or you know something like that, and it's it's a tiny throwaway line that establishes that this person of color is queer and he's married and he's in a position of power and he's a good guy. And that one line, you know, it would like my wife and I looked at each other. We we're like, Whoa, that's awesome. Because no one is making a big deal about it. You know, they're not like saying, wow, good for you. You're queer. And you know, and you, you got married and it was a big issue. It's like, no, in this world, that is normal. And everyone respects him for the job that he's doing and for who he is, not for, you know, his demographic. I think, having things like that is important to to you know people who identify with that but then also an education for people who are a little foreign to it um that hey this is totally fine don't worry about it so i, I it is a political stance in itself to to actually put that in there yeah yeah definitely um, as you said earlier, trauma is a very important component to your story. Um, almost everyone in this novel has some form of post-apocalyptic stress disorder or paused, as Krista likes to say. I really, really like the acronym. Um, there's a lot of bureaucracy concerning uh, paused. And, uh, you know, like the government is really involved in in like maintaining mental health mental health i mean they have like mandatory support group and uh, there's like a family stability board that rehomes children who they deem to be neglected or distressed uh, i'm just curious as to like how you came up with the idea for this system because uh, for me it's like wow this is the complete opposite of of now where i feel like the government hasn't really been all that uh, concerned or put uh, mental health as a priority, whereas in your world, it is like the biggest priority. Yeah, and I, I think part of it really is just trying to think logically. Um, if you have a very fragile society and you know that everyone is carrying trauma with them from it, then the only way that things are going to work is if you give people a support system so they can go to work and you know, work on infrastructure or you know police work or whatever you know you can't have them just breaking down from PTSD moments every 5 minutes um and so it seemed like a very logical driver for this world that in order to maintain some sense of normalcy the, the government has to prioritize this. Um, and then at the same time, they're, you know, they, they are shown to be like, they're taxed on resources, not necessarily trained the best. Everyone's in an extreme position. So while their intent might be good, they're not executing in necessarily the best way. Um, and I think that's just the reality of this world that you're in where, uh, you know, the higher ups understand that there's, there's a need to to do this in order to move forward as a society. But on the ground level, like you're going to have problems with that. Yeah. And also like uh, the idea that this takes place six years after the end of the world. I mean, there needs to be a grieving time. There needs to be a recovery yeah, time. Exactly. And I think, yeah, like it, 
I, I am not super familiar with like the 12 steps of grief, but I do know that there has to be a step where you just have a moment to grieve and not try to like move on too quickly. And that is that is a a problem that that a lot of your characters have. They are trying to like move forward with their lives and constantly uh, reinvent their hiding behind uh their fears and their traumas. And it's only until they really uh, form a connection with each other that they're um, able to start healing. Um, I just wanted to ask if you could talk more about uh, found family versus blood family, because that is a theme that uh, that does come up towards the end of your book. Yeah, I am. A, I'm a very, very big proponent of found family. Um, it's it's very important to me in in my personal life. Um, I wrote an essay um, about this, and it came out with the, the launch of this about why I think like for for me as like the child of an immigrant, it, it seems like extra important because I I, it, I think back to um, like my childhood. And I was kind of being pulled in these two different directions because my my parents were, you know, they were Chinese and Taiwanese immigrants. So they, they grew up with a completely different set of values and communication skills and stuff like that. And I was seeing a lot of influence from like American culture and being around American kids. And I didn't understand why, like when I watched Growing Pains, like these this family's talking about their feelings. That's not happening with me, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of thing. Um and I, I'm very fortunate that uh, my best friend growing up lived next to me and his parents were like my second parents. Um, and, and, you know, they grew up in Wisconsin. So like, you know, they were able to talk about that kind of stuff with me. And the idea that um, I, I think for, for all people, but like, you know, people in a, a situation where like, for whatever reason, like their parents, their blood relatives didn't have the skills or experience to give them everything that they need the ability to accept outside people and embrace them to, to fill in those gaps is just really, really important. I think really healthy. Um, and, and so the idea of found family has always been, been really, really important to me. And in this world, it seems to be like the only way that it makes sense, but this world is also a big metaphor for trauma. And I think that if you look at what causes trauma among people, um, a lot of the time it is, you know, their family. Um, but if it's not driven by their family, their family often doesn't know how to deal with it. And so it's important for people to find, you know, comfort and love uh, and experience elsewhere and allow themselves, like give themselves permission to do that. Yeah. Um, speaking of family, uh, your debut novel, Here and Now and Then, uh, it also focuses a lot on family, especially a parental child relationship. Um, you have fathers who are who love their daughters and are trying to protect them the best way they can, even though they make some grave mistakes. Um, you're a father as well. I'm I'm just interested in uh, were you always interested in writing uh, a like the parent-child relationship in stories, or was that something that came after you became a parent? Um, I think a little bit of both. I mean, I, I my daughter's five, so she was born in 2014. Um, and with both of the books, like I had done the concepts um, before before she was born. And in fact, like around that time, 
there was um like our friends thought we were the couple that wasn't going to have kids like we we didn't really seriously think about it until about uh 2013 or so um in fiction you know you're always looking at creating conflict and using the highest stakes possible and in relationships it's usually you know a, a like a partner or marriage type of thing or parent child um and i don't think i write romance very well i can <laughs> like, like so i i like to write character stories um like i you know you're not gonna really see that being as a big driver necessarily through like a space opera or something it, um but in character stories you need conflicts between relationships to to really drive the the story forward um and so for me it was just easier to to kind of default to to parent child um when when we sold this book as the the second of my two book contract i was actually worried that like uh, you know is it okay that it's another parent child story and you know my editor was like it's fine it's totally different and there's other relationships going on in here uh so you know don't worry about that um but it so it stems mostly from like trying to find the point in fiction where you can create like the most stakes and the most urgency in there. Um, and then after I became a parent, it was much easier to color in a lot of it just from personal experience. Um, so I have one last question for you so, and I think that it's the most important one. Okay. Um, if you were one of these survivors in the world that you created, what community do you think you'll be a part of? The Metro, Reclaimed Territory, or one of the looting gangs? I personally would probably be part of the uh, the Reclaimed Territory communes. Um, I like the idea of, like, it, I mean, assuming, you know, the luxuries we live in right now, like smartphones and Netflix and things like that, and uh like if that just like totally went away and you're looking at like, how are you going to live your day-to-day life? I think the idea of like people working together in like a 500 to thousand person commune um, and just kind of focusing on like resetting a little bit, there's, there's definitely an appeal to that. Um, so I, I would put that as first and then the Metro is a second and I would not survive any sort of like Mad Max escapades in the ways <laughs> So, yeah, that we, I just won't even consider that. I mean, I mean, the looting gangs sound pretty fun, but in reality, <laughs> I don't think any of us you gotta be in this pretty episode badass to do it, and I'm not badass at all. Too much of a rules follower to do to do. I know. <laughs> I feel like I just asked you, like, what is your D and D alignment with, <laughs> with, with like which uh, community would would you be a part of? Yeah, I, I I think in real life, you know, I'd be I wish I was like chaotic good, but I'm like very lawful good. It's really kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, before we let you go, um, what are you reading right now? Do you have any recommendations for our readers on like stuff that's cool? Um, I I don't get to read as much as I would like to, mostly because of deadlines and parenting. Um, I am reading an advanced copy of a book called Rule by Rowena Miller right now. It's the third book in her Unraveled Kingdom trilogy. Uh, the first book was called Torn, and the second book was called Frey. And what I really like about Rowena's books is uh, like I'm not really into epic fantasy that much. Like I'm much more of a sci-fi person, but I like her her magic world because her 
and her magic system is based on art. So seamstresses and musicians and visual artists, like they can harness their creativity into like magical power. And it's very, very political, but not in a game of Thrones, like evil kind of way. Uh, it's like, it's much more nuanced than that. Um, there's a revolution at hand and she based it, she's a big history buff. So she based it on, on the French revolution. And so you see, um, both sides in a healthy way, not not like in our situation right now when both sides is like a uh, you know derogatory term. Like, but this is like a reasonable way to understand like why a ruling class like what what positive benefits come from like the sort of system they've set up, and then also why are people angry? Why are the common people angry? And what turns them into terrorists to to achieve their goals? All while you have you know, a magical seamstress in there. So, um, yeah, uh, Rowena Miller's Unraveled Kingdom trilogy. Everyone pick it up before the uh, third book comes out. Thank you so much for uh, for being uh, being with us today. Um, yeah, congratulations on the launch of your book. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a good conversation. Thank you. And that was Mike Chen, the author of The Beginning at the End, um, available at booksellers everywhere. Uh, so please check it out. And that'll also do it for this episode of Book Sam Boba. Uh, as a quick reminder, what are we reading for the month of February 2020? We are reading The Kiss Potion by Helen Huang. So hopefully you all are keeping up on the book. And if you finish the book and have any thoughts to share, uh, please let us know on our Goodreads forums. We always look forward to hearing from you there. Um, but for Book Sam Boba, uh, thanks again for listening and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This episode was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and produced and edited by Marvin Yue. This podcast was recorded at the Potluck Podcast Studios located within the Visual Communications offices in downtown Los Angeles. You can learn more about Visual Communications and their programs such as the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival by going to their website at vcmedia.org. Thanks also to the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts that Books and Boba is a proud member of. You can learn more about our fellow Potluck Podcasts by checking out the website podcastpotluck.com. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.